You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to, once again, that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF. It's so good to open up God's word together with you this morning. And during Black History Month, I have been reflecting on black scholars and pastors that God has used personally and powerfully in my life that have spurred me on in the knowledge and love of God and also in pastoral service as well. And one such hero is Thabiti Anyabwile who now pastors Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. He's written a great book called Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons that has been a go-to for me over the years. And also his work on this passage in particular that I'm preaching on this morning really helped me gain a framework for better understanding the text and also to be able to better communicate the text as well. So brothers like him have reminded me of just the tremendous well to draw from of black scholars and my encouragement is to, to, is to get to know them and others like them as well. We are in a series in the book of Ephesians called Unity in Christ. Ephesians is all about the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, all according to the purpose and plan of God. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays the theological groundwork for who we once were, what Christ has done, and how he was brought together one new people, one new multi-ethnic people in himself through the cross. And in chapters 4 through 6 now, Paul turns to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received, walking in unity, maturity, and as we will see today, holiness. Would you pray with me? Our Father, you are the God of righteousness. Thank you for answering us when we call. Thank you that you meet us in our distress and that you pour out your great grace. We praise you for setting us apart for yourself, giving us your perfect peace and making us dwell in safety. 
We ask for your joy. We pray that you might shine the light of your face upon us and upon your holy word this morning. Would we hear its truth? Would we put our trust in you? In Christ's precious and holy name, amen. Amen. What a challenging, encouraging, and thought-provoking message our brother Brady brought to us last week on Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And one image that he used really captured my imagination, that of being, being drawn out of a pool and, and replacing his old wet clothes with, with new ones. What a fitting metaphor that is for what God has done in our own lives, how he reached down into the swirling waters of chaos and drew us out, rescuing us, and now calls us to replace those old, wet, funky, foul clothes with beautiful new ones, splendid clothes that are in keeping with our King. Don't miss that significance. We have already been transferred from, as Paul writes in Colossians, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. God has already forgiven us, sealed us with his spirit, and made us members together in the body of Christ. But what remains is for us to dress like it, to dress like it in our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, and actions. These clothes do not make us a child of the king. They reveal that we are one. What is the character that is in keeping with our new identity in Christ that we are to put on? That's what Paul answers in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. It shows us that God's sanctifying power and presence transforms every aspect of our being. What we will see is what's called progressive sanctification, the process where we are gradually made more and more like Jesus. Our own, our own statement of faith reminds us that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. And one of our ethos statements is pervasive gospel. We preach a gospel that can go anywhere and change anything to the depths of our own souls and to the ends of the earth. And so in Ephesians 4 here, verses 25 through 32, Paul gives us five aspects of our lives that are being transformed into the image of Christ. This certainly isn't an exhaustive list, but we should at least make three observations here before we dive in. And first is that these five aspects are all relational. They affect how we live in the community of faith, how we are intended to help maintain the unity of the Spirit that we are called to so fiercely guard. There are negative actions here that are threats to the unity of the body and obstacles to harmonious relationships. And so second observation is that with these aspects, there are both negative prohibitions and then what we might call positive exhortations. Holiness means more than just saying no to sin. It also means saying yes to God. Not only do we need to throw our dirty clothes in the hamper, if we can actually hit the hamper, I often miss it, but we need to put on the new beautiful clothes as well. Third, there are clear theological reasons that are given that also serve as motivations for this, this godly living. It is a good reminder, though, all of, in all of these aspects, that our theology and our practices must be intertwined. It is not as though in the sec this second half of, e of Ephesians that Paul doesn't give any theological reasons. No, he actually further weaves them into this very practical section. 
And so taken together, these five aspects illustrate the change from the old way of life to the new. So let's dive in here, beginning with the first aspect. In, uh, in verse 28, the first aspect is our mouths. I'm sorry, verse 25, look at that with me. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you, turn, if you look back to chapter 4, it's begun with the crucial issue of our unity in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And then in verses 17 through 19, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to no longer walk the way the Gentiles do. Their alienation from God has led to the darkening and the futility of their minds to the point that they have lost all moral sensitivity and have given themselves over to selfishness. He then speaks of their new identity in Christ, how they learned the truth in Christ himself, and then urges them to live in light of their salvation. If you look at verses 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." True righteousness and holiness. In many ways, that is like the banner over this passage here today. Paul moves from the heights of learning Christ and the new creation that we are a part of to then the ground level of how we are to live. He gets much more practical and provides specific, concrete examples. And if you're anything like me, I'd really, really appreciate that. The first negative prohibition given in this verse is to put away falsehood. Picture going on a hike and then veering off of the trail, or what's more, even seeking to destroy the very trail itself. That's what falsehood means. It is a statement that deviates from or perverts the truth itself. Paul has just highlighted the ways that we can be led astray by falsehood. And then he stresses The truth, he stresses speaking the truth in love, the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, verse 21, and then then the true righteousness and holiness that comes from God himself in verse 24. So the accompanying positive exhortation is that we speak the truth with our neighbor. We are to make a habit of speaking the truth. And in making his point here, Paul quotes Zechariah 8.16. Earlier in Zechariah 8, actually in all of verses 1 through 15, God is speaking to the, to the remnant of his people. He reveals that his purpose is to do good to Jerusalem. And he gives promises regarding the new Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem will even be called, in Zechariah 8, 3, the city of truth. Truth city. What a great name. Zechariah 8, 16 through 17, then, is a series of admonitions based on those promises. And in verse 16, it says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Continues, render in your gates judgments that are true and make make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. The very first admonition that the prophet gives here is to speak the truth to one another. Same in Ephesians 4, 
where this is the first in the series of commands Paul gives regarding the new self. God's people are to be characterized by truth, by righteousness and holiness. Who is our neighbor in this context? Zechariah 8, I think, gives us a window into that. The prophet directs his words toward the remnant of the people. But here in Ephesians 4, the very next phrase that's used also signals who is being spoken of here when it says, for we are members one of another. Paul seems to be limiting the discussion to relationships in the body. But while it might be directed primarily at the household of faith, it is not exclusively directed toward believers. A theological reason and motivation that is closely linked is this. We, are, we, are, we belong to one another as members. Paul has highlighted how the church is Christ's body, how Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the same body together, and how the members of the body mutually depend upon one another for growth. We are no longer alienated and independent of one another, but now belong together in unity as we move forward toward complete cosmic reconciliation, that which Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1 verse 10. And so it is vital that members of the body speak truthfully to one another. Think about the breakdown that can occur when different parts of the human body do not speak the truth to other parts. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, paints it very vividly when he says, if the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? If the nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to the mouth? If the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? Or think about it in this way. If my eye sees, uh, or if my, if my eye were to say to my hand, the, uh, the iron is not hot, and my hand touches it, what happens? That's right, I get burned. Church, God's sanctifying power and presence causes us to speak truthfully. That's the first takeaway. We are united together. False words harm one another and threaten the very unity of the body. Falsehood tears at the fabric of unity and disrupts relational harmony. This can also take other forms like being caught up in conspiracy theories or even in times of subtly twisting the truth perhaps to make ourselves look better. In the body, there should be no place for anything other than the truth. Truth is a safeguard for maintaining unity. And we may not withhold the truth. May we not withhold the truth that our sisters and brothers need to act and to make decisions in keeping with God's will, God's purpose. From the first aspect of our mouths, Paul moves to the sec second aspect, and that is our hearts. Look at verses 26 to 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This second aspect here actually takes a slightly different shape from what Paul has been doing. It moves from the positive exhortation of being angry to the negative exhortation of not sinning, kind of reverses that. Here Paul, though, draws from the Old Testament, again, this time from Psalm 4. 
Psalm 4, verse 4. In that psalm, David is unjustly accused of some crime or some sin. Have you been there before? He knows he's innocent, but the dishonor hangs heavy around his neck. God replaces his anger at the outright lies with joy and peace by the end of the psalm. But he urges God's people in verse, in verse 4 when he writes, Be angry and do not sin. He writes this even as he, as he consoles his own heart, as, as his weary heart is strengthened in the midst of sorrow. What Paul is getting at in the beginning of verse 26 is expressing anger rightly. It might sound like a completely foreign concept to us because of how hard it actually is to do. Perhaps you've heard the phrase righteous indignation. It basically amounts to a holy anger against sin and injustice. And it should lead to seeking to right the wrong or stop the offense. The problem, though, is that righteous anger can so quickly go off the rails. Lynn Kohick, in, in writing about this and how easily righteous anger can deviate, writes, It is an easy thing for humans to conceal their own smugness in a cloak of public anger or justify their own pride under the cover of righteous anger. And so Paul, in knowing these dangers, gives three important reminders. The first is, do not sin. Righteous anger can quickly devolve into sin and hinder unity. Anger is yet another obstacle in harmonious relationships in the body. The second reminder is that we should not let the sun go down on our anger. To keep anger from spiraling into sin, Paul puts a time limit on it. Actually, at the last table that we had, the last table event, Nancy Rollins reminded us of this, of this important truth, to not let the sun go down on our anger. Third reminder is that we give no opportunity to the devil. Jesus had identified Satan as the father of lies. Giving him opportunity is like providing space for him to function. It, it could be translated do not give the devil a chance to exert his influence. It is a preview, too, of, I think, the spiritual warfare theme that Paul will take up in Ephesians chapter 6. And so our takeaway from this aspect is that God's sanctifying power and presence causes us to express anger rightly. What should we get angry about? Perhaps a better question is, what does God get angry about. God expresses righteous anger when he is sinned against or when wrong or injustice is done to one of his image bearers. But when God is angry, he is always in control. We have a tendency to allow anger to control us, and so we need to hear these admonitions to, to not sin, to not let the sun go down on our anger, to give no opportunity to the devil. Sin is a personal affront to a holy God. And injustice undermines the dignity that is due every single one of God's image bearers. Not only must we not sin when angry, but we should not let the sun go down on our anger. This means not nursing anger, not brooding over it. Instead, dealing with it quickly as possible. 
and running toward reconciliation. I think this became even more apparent to me after getting, after getting married. You know, after maybe having a, maybe you can identify, maybe after having a, a, an argument with your spouse, <laughs> you have, you're forced with that, that realization, I have to lay down next to this individual? We need to keep short accounts. We need to keep short accounts with one another and not allow anger to spill over one more day. The day we become angry should be the day that we reconcile. We must not allow anger to give opportunity to the devil. If not dealt with, Satan can use it for evil and exploit the fissures, the cracks in the community. Notice that the devil does not cause the anger. Rather, he exploits it and manipulates it for his purpose. There's almost a... a of course, I have to slip this in there as an, as an army guy, but there's, there's a, a, almost a military image that's used here of ceding territory to the enemy. Satan gains territory through the uncontrolled anger in Christians' lives. Yes, as the body of Christ, we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another, but we are still vulnerable to dissension in the ranks as the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So from the second aspect, the second aspect of our hearts, Paul moves to the third, that of our hands. So from our, our mouths to our hearts to our hands. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The negative prohibition that Paul starts off with here is, let the thief no longer steal. What kind of stealing Paul refers to here may not be readily um, accessible, but it's probably not so much that, that kind of stealing like, you know, Aladdin, stealing apples in the marketplace, although that could have been part of it. But more likely, Paul is addressing theft in the form of laborers stealing from the things that they handled. Shopkeepers cheating customers a little here, a little there. Servants not returning all of the change from a purchase that they made. Lenders extorting high interest from debtors. Instead, the positive exhortation is to labor, is to labor doing honest work with his own hands. Again, think, think of Paul's own background in tent making. And also his encouragements like that in Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I just have to give a side note there. The other day, uh, Izzy, our daughter, asked if, uh, if, I think she asked something like, if ballerinas were in the Bible. And that's the verse that I gave her. <laughs> whatever you do, work heartily as to please God, not people. The emphasis, though, on working with our own hands isn't just limiting the discussion to manual labor. No, Paul contrasts using our hands to obtain things with little effort with using our hands to obtain things honestly. Stealing should be replaced with hard work. But there's more to the story. There's another theological reason and motivation that he provides. That 
he may have something to share with anyone in need. Not only must we must we work hard to provide for our needs, but we need a true assessment of the needs of those around us. Paul, when he spoke to the the elders of the Ephesian church, when he was getting ready to depart, Acts 20 verse 35 kind of gives us a window into that when he, it says, in all things, Paul's words, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here are essentially the options. You can steal in order to get what isn't yours. You can work in order to get for yourself. Or you can work in order to get what you need and give to others in need. And that's what Paul stresses here. Andrew Lincoln, in writing on this passage, not the actor Andrew Lincoln who appears in The Walking Dead, but the the scholar Andrew Lincoln writes, the thief is to become a philanthropist. I love that. The thief is to become a philanthropist as the illegal taking of the old way of life is replaced by the generous giving of the new. So our takeaway from this aspect is that God's sanctifying power and presence causes us to work honestly. What are some of the ways that people steal today? Could be cutting corners. Could mean stealing from the company. Could mean underreporting income. Myriads of others. Sisters and brothers, God created us to work and designed us for work. I can't help but think of Genesis 2.15, this pre-fall reality where it says that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Work is one of God's good gifts. It is a, like I said, it is a pre-fall reality. And we are to see our work as part of worship, part of whole life worship. Truth-telling needs to also move into truth-seeing. That is, being aware of the true needs in the body and in the community that surrounds us. Truth-seeing. We must be willing to share with others, remembering that it is ultimately God who supplies everything that we need. And what's more, and kind of, again, preaching to myself here, we need to be willing to bring others into our own needs. God has taught my own family a great deal about what it means to be what I might call gracious recipients of generosity particularly in our adoption journey, what it means to be gracious recipients of generosity. And as we've heard this morning, we have just an incredible team here at, at EBF, our care team, that would love to know ways that they can care for you and also pray for you. Even in our ethos communities as well, let us bring one another in on the needs, the significant burdens that we bear that we may bear one another's burdens and help one another in in our time of need. So from the third aspect of our hands, Paul actually returns to our mouths, verses 29 through 30. It's that important, but he does so with a twist. Look at verses 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The negative prohibition that Paul gives here is that we let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. You know, when you leave something in your fridge for too long and it becomes a science experiment, that's what the word corrupting here means. In scripture, it's used for decaying trees, rotten fruit, and putrid fish. It can also convey that which is essentially useless or unsound. Paul is, it's like Paul is saying, make no unsound sounds. Then the positive exhortation that is linked with this is that, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Have you ever tried to build something with rotten wood? Yeah, it doesn't go very well, needless to say. Paul has used building imagery here along the way in the building up of the body of Christ, the, the body being built together and then maturing together in love. Here, building up speaks to bringing an incomplete building closer to fullness or completion. And what we need are sound words. What we need are quality construction materials for the building up of the body of Christ. There's also, there's also a note here too, not only them being quality construction materials, but right fitting that is specifically chosen for specific purposes to build up the body. The, the, the theological reason or motivation that is tied to this is that it may give grace to those who hear. What a beautiful picture of our words our words benefiting others, our words being like gifts of grace, being bestowers of grace, kind of being able to, to mirror that which God does himself in dispensing grace. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Closely linked, though, to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths is another negative prohibition in verse 30, that of, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. The Spirit, he, he points to the Spirit as a person who can be grieved. Our sin causes the Spirit to become sorrowful. There is also great significance to his title, the Holy Spirit of God. It underscores his very identity and the seriousness of causing him to be sorrowful. Here Paul echoes Isaiah 63. You can just tell how steeped in the Old Testament he is by citing Zechariah 8 and Psalm 4 and here Isaiah 63 in warning the Ephesians to not make the same mistakes as the people of Israel. Isaiah 63 looks back to the Exodus, how God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into covenant relationship with himself, led them by his personal presence through the wilderness, the Spirit. But Israel rebelled against the Lord and grieved the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. Isaiah 63 verse 10 says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he, turn, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Do not miss this. In Ephesians, Paul speaks 
to the new covenant community, the one new people made up of Jews and Gentiles who have been redeemed from slavery, reconciled to God and to one another through the cross, and have become a holy temple in the Lord, the place where God dwells by His Spirit. Paul picks up the language of, of Isaiah 63 and changes it from, instead of, instead of saying kind of a, more of the observation, they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit, to a command. Now in light of this new covenant reality, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sins like those mentioned here in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, and especially corrupting talk in verse 29, bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit and work against the unity that the Spirit produces, as verse 3 of this chapter reminds us. These sins oppose God's reconciling, unifying, new creation work in the lives of believers. Paul goes on, though, to remind us that we have been sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. This is a point that he has made earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. Here again is another, another sign that Paul is talking to those who have become followers of Christ and are sealed by his Spirit, but are now putting on these qualities as part of the process of sanctification. We too look forward to that day, the day of redemption, when we will be fully sanctified. This is the goal of human history. This is when God will fully redeem his own possession. And in the meantime, the Spirit's seal is a guarantee or an authenticating mark that we belong to God and that we will gain our full inheritance in him. Church, God's sanctifying power and presence causes us to communicate constructively. Do our words build up or tear down? How often do we use rotten words that harm one another? Obscenity, slander, gossip, abusive language. Jesus taught us in Matthew 15 verse 11, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Someday we will have to give an account for every careless word that we speak. So we need to replace those unsound sounds, those unsound words with, with sound ones that build up and edify the body. Proverbs 25, 11 describes those kinds of words. Those words are a word fitly spoken. They're like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Yes, we should be willing to speak the truth, but not a cold, hard truth that harms others. Our words should be gracious and a blessing to those around us. In what ways do we grieve God's Spirit? It is striking to me that Paul presents grieving the Spirit not as directly attacking the Spirit, but instead as engaging in sinful behaviors toward one another. This is what grieves the Spirit, destroys relationships, and undermines the Spirit's work in building up people into Christ. So in anything that we think or do or say, we should ask, what will this, what will this do? Will this please the Spirit or will it grieve Him?
from the fourth aspect here, Paul moves to the final one, and that is of our relationships, verses 31 to 32. There are actually a lot of ways that our relationships have been woven into this whole passage, but particularly here in verses 31 to 32, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The negative prohibition in these verses is that, is let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. There's a certain rhetorical effect that takes place here, the building up of these terms that you probably hear along the way. Bitterness has to do with animosity, anger, or harshness. And it, there's a great significance to the fact that it heads the list because it can so easily lead to other sins. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Wrath and anger are very similar terms. If there's any slight nuance to them or slight difference, it's that wrath is a feeling of intense anger, an outburst of rage, whereas the word for anger here is more of a steady, festering, or seething anger. You might think of a, think of a pot that is boiling. Clamor and slander, these last two terms here, circle back to the theme of speech. It's amazing to see how important that topic is in Paul's mind. He comes back to the mouth over and over again. Clamor has to do with angry shouting, shouting back and forth in a quarrel, and demonstrating lack of restraint. Whereas slander is more, has to do more with abusive words, falsely spoken, that, that damage a person's reputation. It could be profane speech. It could be abusive speech as well. In using the phrase, be put away from you. It's one of those, it's one of those Easter eggs, if you will, in, in this passage that is a reminder that we can't do this on our own. It is, in the, it, is, it is passive. We need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us to do this transforming work in our lives. By ending this this list with the phrase, all malice, it is an all-encompassing word for wickedness. And again, there's a powerful effect to the accumulation of terms here. And there's also, I think, a progression of anger from the inner resentful attitudes to seething rage to then public shouting and abusive cursing. And so in stark contrast to this is the positive exhortation to be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Kindness refers to that which is fitting or appropriate to the situation. Think of when you try on a piece of clothing and it fits just right. That is the image being portrayed here. That which is fitting, that which fits just right. And this does not come to us naturally. It cannot be produced on our own. Yes, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Tenderness. Tenderness means being sympathetic to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
you can hear behind that what he has already talked about with our working with our hands to be able to provide for the needs, being aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 3 verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, there it is again, and a humble mind. Kindness, tenderness, forgiveness. Forgiveness here actually could be translated, or this whole phrase could be translated, being gracious to one another. Harold Honer writes this. This just really captured my my imagination when he writes, Graciousness is the antithesis of bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and abusive speech. In other words, bitterness is counteracted. Bitterness is counteracted by a gracious attitude. Anger and wrath are counteracted by a gracious disposition. And shouting and abusive speech are counteracted by gracious speaking. The theological reason and motivation that Paul concludes with is the phrase, as God in Christ forgave you. God's sanctifying power and presence causes us to interact graciously. It is so easy to see how a root of bitterness can take hold. This can come from a heart that is, that is not right before God. Wrath and anger can certainly simmer and can bubble over. Think of that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Church, that is not true. Perhaps coming from, most recently coming from Colorado and seeing the devastating effects of of forest fires, I'm reminded of how the tongue can ignite, the tongue can ignite a fire, a raging fire, as James reminds us. Words have power to tear down, but they also have power to build up. Here's a challenge for us this week. Let us reflect on all that we have been forgiven of. Let us sit down, put pen to paper, and think of the ways that God has first forgiven us and how we need His forgiveness on a daily basis. Jesus taught us to remember His forgiveness for our infinite debt and to be quick to forgive others when they sin against us. When we don't forgive, it actually signals that we don't rightly understand or appreciate how Jesus has first forgiven us. So church, once more, putting it all together, God's sanctifying power and presence transforms every aspect of our being. Our mouths, our hearts, our hands, our spirit, our relationships. And that's just the start. If we zoom out for a second, this passage also reminds us of the larger gospel story at work. It reminds us of the the sweeping drama of redemption. From the very beginning, with that phrase or with the word falsehood, it points back to the, the twisting of the truth that took place in the garden itself and in the fall of humankind. Truth-telling can be seen as a reversal of the curse. And it's no mistake that that's what Paul begins with. Truth-telling as a reversal of the curse. Each one of these aspects, Jesus models so perfectly. He is 
the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He perfectly embodies, as John, the Gospel of John reminds us, he perfectly embodies both grace and truth. He perfectly demonstrates anger without sinning. Think, for example, of, of his righteous wrath in driving out the money changers. Jesus labored as a carpenter for many years. What an amazing part of his earthly ministry that we often forget. He spent years toiling in labor, and he speaks words of grace, gracious words. He is kind. He is the embodiment of kindness, of tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Just picture him saying, um, even just something that we read as a family the other day, with my kids on my knee, let the little children come to me. What a picture of tenderness. And also forgiveness when he says from the very cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God has some clues in this text here about the fact that he has already saved us. We have seen, we see that he has forgiven us, that he has sealed us with the Spirit, and that he has made us members of the body, members one with the other. So now, and if you were to locate this passage in that larger story of what God is doing, we are in that process of sanctification. We are being honed and shaped and uh, honed and, and shaped and fashioned more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But a day is coming. A day is coming. The day of redemption, as Paul describes it. When all will be made right. The devil will be defeated, and we will be fully built up like him. So what are you wearing? Have you come to know Christ? Are you dressed in his true righteousness and holiness? Do your clothes show that you are his child? Dear church, let us live out our identity as a new creation in Christ for the good of the body for the good of the world around us, and ultimately for the glory of God. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are good, that you are God. We praise you, O Lord, for what you have done in your Son, to rescue us, redeem us, and for that work that you are doing even now, chiseling away at us, making us more and more in the image of Christ. And so we pray for each of these aspects. We pray for, for these aspects and more, God, that in our speech, in our conduct, in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships, to the very depths of our heart and to the ends of the earth, would you transform us? Would you make us more and more into the image of Christ? And would you use us to not only declare your gospel, but to do your gospel, identifying the needs of those around us in our community, in our church, in our community and beyond? And Lord, prepare us. Build us up and prepare us for that day when you will make all things new for your own glory. We love you, Lord.
We ask for your grace and strength. We ask for your power through the Holy Spirit, your Spirit's power and presence to make these characteristics and qualities a reality in our lives. We love you and we need you. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.